Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminally Disturbed. I am Paul. And I'm Jamie. And I am back, feeling better. Welcome back. Yeah, and I was glad to be back here with you guys and my beautiful wife here on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, baby. Oh, well, thank you. And I was fixing to tell all the other mothers, grandmothers, stepmothers, adoptive mothers, or anybody that's in a mother role. Yep. Happy Mother's Day. Absolutely. Happy Mother's Day to everyone out there. And there are some women out there that do not deserve to be mothers. I, we've talked about a couple yeah, of them. We have in the most recent yeah. uh, few episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's one that we uh, recently discussed that absolutely deserved to be a mother, but didn't deserve what happened to her. Right. Mm-hmm. So go back and listen to some of those episodes because they are... You know, some of them are heartwarming. Some of them are tragic. All of them are really tragic. Yeah, they're all tragic. Yeah. But But tonight, I wanted to do something a little bit different. So I'm going to hit everybody with a little bit of everything. Uh, This has some true crime. It has some paranormal. It has some good vibes. It has some bad vibes. It has murder. It has, like I said, paranormal activity it has you know just a lot to it and then it it has native americans in it uh it has military in it it has all kinds of things but at the end it's gonna have a really a really happy ending so i'm not gonna leave you with oh this piece of shit you know like we normally do you know and he's still alive and he's waiting on death row or he's doing this or he's doing that or they never solved the case I'm not going to leave you hanging like that tonight. So we are going to start with an area, an area of the United States. But, and this is all happening before the settlers even came across the, what is now the United States. So before the settlers made their way to the area of what is now called Eureka Springs, Arkansas, Native American tribes would often visit the area for several reasons some of these tribes included the osage the creek and the choctaw shout out to the choctaws by the way thank you thank you yeah the now populated area was described as vast and mountainous woods and had an abundance of wildlife for good hunting the location of the area also brought a mixture in climate which produced milder temps Uh, which contrasted the south and the north, so it was a happy medium, basically. The northwest Arkansas area also has a good amount of natural springs, which, I mean, you and I have been to Hot Springs, Mm -hmm. and and actually we've been to Branson too, and and even when we were on our way back from Branson, we were taking a lot of detours to try to, you know, and it's a beautiful area up there in, in north Arkansas. So one in particular, though, the Basin Spring was visited a lot by early tribes because of its alleged healing powers. Oh, okay. Yeah. The name Basin Spring was coined later by white settlers as they thought that the stone basin, which caught the natural spring water, was hand-carved by Native American Indians. There's nothing to substantiate that, though. That's just what they thought. 
The legend of Basin Springs starts with the daughter of a chief who suffered with an ailment with her eyes. It is said that they traveled to the Basin Spring where the young girl washed her eyes with the spring water and her vision was restored a short while later. Hmm. So that's the legend. It is also stated that the area surrounding the spring was considered sacred to the tribes and no warring was allowed in the area for fear of the creator drying up the waters in the area. Okay. The Native Americans, being the people that they are, welcomed outside visitors who suffered from ailments and injuries to the healing waters, and word started to spread quickly. The more disturbing view of the area comes in 1839 when the once beautiful and sacred Basin Spring became a rest stop for the Cherokee Indians as they were forcibly relocated from their homelands east of the Mississippi River to the Oklahoma Territory, which is now known as the Trail of Tears. Okay. This was all due to President Andrew Jackson's 1830 Indian Removal Act, which, as we know was designed to remove tribes and open the land up to settlers. I had a lot of feelings about that, but I'm not going to get into that here. Yeah. 1856 is when the first white settler, Dr. Alva Jackson, quote, discovered the spring and soon found that it had healing powers when his son's eye ailment was cured in the spring water. Dr. Jackson then went on to establish Dr. Jackson's Cave Hospital. Now, this spring is up in the mountains of, mm-hmm. you know, so naturally, you're up in the mountains and this is, you know, the 18 mid 1800s, you know, you're not just going to build a building just like, you know, like that. So, uh he <laughs> I guess he was up there in the mountains and so he did use a cave, something like that. Yeah. Oh, okay. He would use the waters to care for soldiers during the Civil War, actually. A friend of Dr. Jackson's, Judge Levi Best Saunders, traveled to the area in the spring of 1879 at the invitation of Dr. Jackson. Judge suffered from a skin disease that was cured in the waters. And with this, the judge set up camp in the area. He was then followed by 20 other families who also set up camp. So if he was cured by the waters, did he like get in the water or did they take from the the uh, basin? It said that they got in the waters. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking of contaminating it. By the yeah, I didn't even think about that. Being contaminated. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're right. <laughs> okay. But I mean, you know. There was watering holes and things, I mean, that people swam in and all this stuff like this. But this is a natural spring, and it drains down the mountain. So it's always kind of replenishing itself, you know? It refreshes itself, I guess, because it's being fed naturally. Yeah. But I get what you're saying. That gives me the willies. Yeah. Okay. A few months later, on July the 4th, of 1879, the Victorian town of Eureka Springs was formally founded and named. But why the Eureka? Why Eureka? Because they found the land and they said, aha, Eureka. 
Close. I was just joking. <laughs> it was really close. <laughs> it is said that Judge Sanders' son, Buck, suggested it for the explorer Ponce de Leon's exclamation, Eureka, which means I have found it, as they felt as though they had found the fountain of youth that need, the explorer had been looking for. I need to go find this fountain. As you know, I mean, Ponce de Leon was always in search of the fountain of youth. That's why yeah. he actually went to Florida. The more the word spread, the more people flocked to the small town of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And the more houses, hotels, boarding houses, and businesses were built. We are now going to focus on one of those hotels. <gasps> I know what it is. Tell me what you think it is. Is it the, uh, oh, shoot, because we talked about staying there before. Because they have, like, ghost tours, the uh, basin. No. In 1884. Okay, well, you just delete this part out because I don't want to oh, sound yeah. stupid. <laughs> I know which one you're talking about because it was mentioned in a lot of my readings and I, that I... Okay, you know, never mind. But not that one. In 1884, the then Arkansas governor, Powell Clayton, chose a 27-acre portion of land at the north end of West Mountain. An architect, Isaac Taylor was chosen and construction began on a new luxurious hotel with a whopping budget of $294,000. There were two construction companies teamed up for this, the Eureka Springs Improvement Company and the Frisco Railroad Company. Isaac Taylor, designing offices, hotels, factories, and railroad stations throughout the United States and Mexico. He gained a reputation as a hardworking, honest architect who liked to tackle projects others avoided. His dedication and quality earned him the appointment of chairman of the Architectural Commission and director of works for the World's Fair of 1904. Wow. Taylor was second in command designing and executing the world-famous attraction. His vision drove the project forward, and attracted millions. So, in other words, he was the type of person that liked a challenge. Yes, and you're fixing to see what kind of challenge this was. Okay. The construction of this hotel was a massive undertaking. There was a quarry located on the, near, uh, located on the nearby White River that yielded limestone. Irish stonemasons which were brought to the United States at this time for the sole purpose of building this hotel, carved and assembled 18-inch thick blocks of the limestone. The limestone was shipped from the quarry 10 miles to near the construction site by railway, which was owned by Governor Clayton. I'm just wondering, obviously, this is way back when, so where you said they brought in the Irish stonemasons they're the best in the world at this time but my thought is like how do you get in touch with them because obviously you can't google them you can't <laughs> do a phone call yeah. so how does somebody over here be like oh i bet over there in ireland there's some really good stonemasons so architecture is uh that type of architecture stone mm -hmm. is big in ireland and scotland the castles Think about the castles. 
That's true. And things. They had, you know, these people were professional masons. That's what they did. So it's obvious you go to where the most stone making or stone construction was at the time. Remember, the United States is really kind of, you know, getting going. Right. And stuff. They're, for the most part, the settlers are building out of wood. Nobody around here knows how to build out of stone. Right. All right. So this was a marvel at this time. So the leader of the imported Irish workers, Mr. O'Shaughnessy, that's a cool name, was interviewed by a reporter before returning to Ireland and stated that throughout the many years of his stoneworking, he has never encountered a stone with such density and quality as the White River limestone. So you can see that even a master mason as Mr. O'Shaughnessy was uh, kind of taken by this stone, this mm-hmm. limestone of Arkansas. And you just don't see a whole lot of buildings that are built this way anymore. You know? Right. Uh, they don't use... Now, we use it today. If you see limestone, you see it as, a, as just a facade. You see it as just a covering, not structural and visual aspect of it as well so anyway very pretty during construction once the framing of the building was up and the building was getting its masonry exterior it is said that one of the irish stonemasons his name was michael fell to his death from high up oh that's not good no it's not not a whole lot was said about him though unfortunately Poor guy. I know. Despite the horrible accident, in May of 1886, construction was completed and the hotel was then furnished in the most exquisite way. Edison lamps lit up the interior of the building and it was furnished with electric bells. Oh, my. Electric bells. The hotel was heated with steam and open grates. It also had a hydraulic elevator which made it a showpiece for the time's conveniences. Okay. It was at this time that the very beautiful Victorian-style Crescent Hotel was opened. That's the one I was thinking of. (laughs) A grand opening gala was held, and very well-known politicians and high-society dignitaries were in attendance. With this, the Crescent Hotel was open for business. The local paper, Eureka Springs Times, Echo, called it, quote, America's most luxurious hotel. Now, this, this is fun. This is funny. Recorded history of 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa shows that a feline has been one of the mainstays of their gift of hospitality to those who visit the historic Hotel of America. That history continues. There may have been many other cats that walked the halls of this mountaintop spa resort since its grand opening on May 20th, 1886. But it wasn't until 1973 when hotel records show an orange tabby named Morris walked into the lobby and stayed for 21 years. Damn. This cat became such a fixture of the Crescent that he was referred to as, quote, the general manager. Oh. 
to further prove the heartfelt sentiments of local citizens toward this towards this feline when morris died more than 300 people attended his farewell ceremony held at the hotel his wake was followed by his interment on the hotel property oh quote today visitors can step outside to our east lawn area and see morris's headstone his photo and remembrance poem grace our lobby explained jack moyer general manager of the crescent now i have the poem and it reads this in memory of morris the resident cat of the crescent hotel he filled his position exceedingly well the general manager title he wore was printed right there on his own office door he acted as greeter and sometimes as guide whatever his duties he did them with pride he chose his own hours (laughs) and set his own pace the guests were impressed with his manners and grace upstairs and down he kept everything nice they might have had ghosts but they never had mice that's awesome that is awesome yeah i would kind of like to go see that well i don't know we'll have to check into it and see the crescent hotel remained a staple in the eureka springs area for years until it was bought and occupied by the frisco railroad company in 1905 over the next few years the railroad company utilized the hotel to serve their customers but also saw a massive decline in occupancy in the off-season months and in 1908 decided to lease the building in the off-season to the crescent college and conservatory for young women okay it didn't take long for this to become one of the most exclusive boarding academies in arkansas but due to the hardships felt from the great depression the college and conservatory was forced to close its doors in 1934. The hotel was still in operation, but only in the seasonal months. We're around that time of 1934-ish, something like that. We're going to talk about a man by the name of Norman Baker. I thought you were going to say Norman Bates. I almost <laughs> read that when I started reading this on this. Uh, Baker was born in Muscatine, Iowa, and I, I hope that I'm saying that right, and I apologize if I'm not. Muscatine, Iowa. The youngest of 10 children, he dropped out of high school his sophomore year and followed in his father's footsteps, becoming a machinist. But an encounter with a traveling mentalist show changed his life. After seeing the show, he recruited a troupe of other performers and toured around the Midwest where he performed as an illusionist and hypnotist. Oh, okay. After a few years, his troupe signed on with a lucrative theater on the vaudeville circuit. After a decade of touring, he married another performer and settled down back in Muscatine. He went back to being a machinist and inventor, patenting the caliophone. Now, it's some kind of an instrument, but uh, it's kind of a, a portable steam organ is what, they, what they're describing here. He also had a mail-order business, a correspondence art school, and other business ventures that made him quite a bit of money. 
the Caliophone alone earned him $200,000 in a single year. In today's standards, that's $3 million. Wow. Then, in the 1920s, Baker realized the power of radio, and he wanted in on the action. So, in 1924, he negotiated a deal with the Muscatine Chamber of Commerce in exchange for free rent and utilities, his new station, KTNT, which stood for Know the Naked Truth, would make Muscatine famous. He promised he'd broadcast, quote, real honest-to-goodness, end quote, entertainment that farmers and small-town folks would enjoy. Okay. So the chamber obliged, and Baker got his deal. He had the KTNT studio built on top of a hill along with a gift shop restaurant and excursion boat on the nearby lake and a large six pump gas station offering the lowest prices around you got to sit here and think this guy's got a lot of things going on he's making a lot of money so obviously he's got some kind of a head on his shoulders right Mm -hmm. well he also frequently violated the broadcast license KTNT was only licensed to broadcast at 5,000 watts, but Baker would often boost the signal to double that. Since the station was on top of a hill, he or his employees could see if an FCC inspector was on their way to check on them. So, and if they were, he would just kind of turn the dial back down, you know, so bring right. it back down to 5,000. So, thanks to the station's illegally large reach, it became um, one of the most popular stations in the country. Wow. On the weekends, the thousands would flock to the KTNT grounds to listen to Baker's broadcast. At its largest, the crowd was estimated to be about 50,000 people. That's a lot back then. Yeah, that's like a full football stadium. Wow. An NFL football stadium. At one point, he decided to take his broadcasting equipment outside so he could interact on air with his adoring fans. Why was Baker so popular, though? Well, for one thing, Baker's experience as a vaudeville performer honed his speaking and persuasive skills. And Baker broadcast his shows in the evening, specifically during the dinner hour when farmers and laborers would be at home listening to the radio. He's pretty damn smart. He's smart. I mean, you got to hand it to him. That's smart. He preached a fiery populist message full of anti-intellectual, anti-Semitic, and anti-Catholic rants. He saw conspiracies everywhere. His business competitors and unsympathetic newspapers were publishing lies about him trying to shut down, quote, the truth. He even accused the local PTO of being a communist organization. (laughs) Getting a little far there, man. Yeah. Yeah, he's taking it just a little bit too far. But Baker's biggest nemesis, the one that he railed on about consistently, was the American Medical Association, the AMA. Why? He accused the local university hospital of being a, quote, slaughterhouse. He frequently accused the AMA of having a cure for cancer 
but keeping it secret so doctors could make more money on surgeries and radiation treatments. How many times have we heard people out there say I was this? Say, I was, yeah, people still say that today. You are right. A lot of conspiracy theorists out there that say this. Well, where do you think those conspiracy theories started? Right here. I was fixing to say with homie right there at the top of the mountain. Remember now, Baker was really, really rich. Mm -hmm. He dressed in fancy purple and lavender suits and... I'd seen your eyes. And a gold and diamond horseshoe tie pin. He even had a customized purple Franklin Roadster outfitted with air conditioning and bulletproof glass. He sounds very flamboyant. Mm. Yet he constantly accused his enemies of being nothing but greedy charlatans. Damn charlatans. Charlatans. Out to squeeze the little folks for every one of their hard-earned dimes. Remember now, he dropped out in the 10th grade. Right. Never went to college. He styled himself as a, quote, self-taught healer. And his, quote, cures included mostly felt remedies, like using an onion to cure appendicitis. I don't know about that. Yeah. Now. In 1929, he went to Dr. Now, I'm fixing to butcher this name. Ozias. O-Z-I-A-S. Ozias. That's, that's how I would pronounce it. Okay. He went to Dr. Ozias's cancer clinic in Kansas City, Missouri. Ozias was another wild quack who claimed to had the cure for cancer a secret proprietary blend of herbs and spices that was actually just corn silk, clover, ground watermelon seeds, and water. I was going to say, was this really like the KFC recipe that he had? Because, <laughs> you know, nobody knows that recipe. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, well, well, now we know his recipe. So, so Baker and Ozias chose five cancer patients to administer the cure to so they could report on their results shockingly all five patients died i'm so surprised but that's not what baker and ozias said of course they didn't they publicly claimed the patients had all miraculously recovered okay (laughs) in night yeah nobody asked i mean where where they at yeah where are they (laughs) Can uh, we see them? Oh, they're sunning down on the beach in Mexico. Can we check and see if their cancer is gone? Yeah. You know. Mm, okay. In 1930, JAMA, J-A-M-A, published an article about Baker's, quote, lies, viciousness, and quackery. So Baker fought back in the pages of his newsletter, claiming the AMA was just trying to, quote, shut down the truth. He even said that they had sent assassins to kill him but that one of the would-be assassins recognized him as having cured his friend, so he backed out. Holy shit! That's the guy that cured my friend of cancer. Is he okay? I I don't think he's okay. Oh, this gets a lot better. Okay. In a tactic we still see today, he also used the AMA's attack as an excuse to raise funds for his, quote, fight. He then sued the AMA for libel 
asking $500,000. Wow. Which, in this time, that was probably a billion dollars now. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. He wanted to bring in a long line of former patients to testify on his behalf. But they had all either gotten worse or died. (laughs) That's not funny, but... It's funny that he wanted to bring them in to testify for him. Yeah. Sorry, they can't come in. They're dead. They're busy being dead. We tried to subpoena this person. Um, We left it on their headstone. Wow. I mean, you know. Former employees testified as to what was in his cure, further proving just what a quack he was. Needless to say, his fact-free grandstanding didn't work in a real court of law, and he lost. Thanks to what came out in trial, he was later charged with practicing medicine without a license, so he fled to Mexico. Oh, damn. The border town of Nuevo Laredo, to be exact. There, he ran a 100,000-watt, quote, border blaster station, X-E-N-T, where he continued his grandstanding, lying, and attacks against the medical establishment. He also, while still in Mexico, ran for governor of Iowa on the farm labor ticket, but he didn't even get on the ballot. How would he have thought that he could have ran for governor and he was now technically a resident of mexico well he's a fugitive number one well oh yeah so okay there's uh, I mean, that yeah there's that and then how are you going to campaign in iowa from mexico the radio which wow. i'm assuming went that far a hundred thousand watts by today's standards i don't know what that is but i'm sure that he was able to reach it's crazy I'm sure you're going to lead to it that somebody's finally going to eventually check him out and see that he's not okay. We're getting there. Okay. So, however, in 1936, he was able to work out a deal with the state of Iowa, now run by a more sympathetic governor, of course, uh, where he would serve one day in jail and pay a $1,050 fine. After his triumphant release, he ran for senator. Again, he lost. No longer able to run a radio station or a cancer clinic, and failing as a politician, Baker decided to leave Iowa for good. He set his sights on some place where he could be back in business, free from the burdensome government regulations he faced in Iowa, some place with fresh air and a healthful reputation. Eureka Springs, Arkansas. And in 1937, Norman Baker, who claimed to be a, quote, doctor, purchased the Crescent Hotel for $40,000 and converted it to Baker's Cancer Curing Hospital. Whoa. People with cancer and a whole host of other diseases flocked to the Baker Cancer Hospital. (gasps) This is why it's haunted. Many signing away their life savings in the process. It wasn't long, though, before locals who worked at the Baker Cancer Hospital began noticing suspicious goings-on. Soon after its opening, one entire wing was soundproofed and sealed off behind a door that was locked from the outside. It was labeled 
the psychiatric wing. And the patients who weren't getting any better were sent there. Oh. Another, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Another thing the local workforce noted, patients were often often declared cured even when they were clearly in worse shape than when they checked in. It was later revealed that these patients would return home only to die within days. Oh, that's horrible. Some didn't even make it that far. They died on the train ride home. Mm. Rumors began to circulate among the locals that Baker was conducting medical experiments on on patients in the basement morgue, that he was spiriting away deceased patients via tunnels to a crematory in town that's not true though okay the morgue was in there Mm -hmm. and he did have patients in there what is not true is him leaving the premises through tunnels Mm -hmm. to a crematory in town he buried them in the morgue like in the floor in the floor below the hotel this is why it's haunted What can be confirmed is that 44 patients died at the Baker Cancer Hospital during the 20 months it was in operation. Since these folks were already dying of fatal diseases like cancer, they were not autopsied, and no investigation was conducted into their deaths. Come on now. Really? Everyone agrees that Baker was a quack and a fraud. And that his patients died because they didn't get the medical treatments they needed. But he wasn't just a quack and a cheat. He was a serial killer. Both of the formulas he was injecting into his patients contained carbolic acid, also known as phenol, which is a powerful poison that can cause organ failure which is the exact method used by Nazis to euthanize inmates in their concentration camps. Oh, my God. Baker was arrested on mail fraud charges. Postal inspectors alleged that Baker had defrauded his victims using a newsletter out of nearly $4 million. That's almost $78 million in today's money. Okay, I get that, and I'm glad they got him on something. But really, we're going to get him on freaking mail fraud and not injecting patients with that other shit? Yeah, no. Priorities. It was a three-week trial, and he was convicted and sentenced to three years in Leavenworth Prison. He also had to, he was ordered to pay a fine of $4,000. After his sentence... As the assets of Norman Baker, Inc. were being divided up by the courts, it was discovered that Baker had been engaged in yet another crime, embezzlement. He had been secretly withdrawing money out of the corporation's bank account. He would then give the money, fat envelopes of cash, to Thelma Yunt, his personal secretary, who would smuggle them into Nuevo Laredo where she would place it in a safe deposit box. In all, he embezzled $1 million, but he was never charged for it. What the fuck was going on back then? (laughs) No, right? After Baker served his time, he tried to open another, quote, research center. 
in Muscatine, but the city refused permission. Oh, I'm glad. He eventually retired to live on his yacht in Florida near Miami. In a rather poetic justice, he developed liver cancer. Oh, well, there's that. Rather than submit to the medical treatments he so hated, he went to the Battle Creek Sanitarium. He died in 1958 at the age of 75. I was going to say, you know, instead of getting like regular treatments, they could have just treated him with the treatments that he was treating the other <laughs> patients with. Yeah. I mean. Right. Come on now. Karma. <laughs> So a friend of Baker's began running the hotel shortly after his trial, eventually turning it over to a group of Chicago-based businessmen some six years later. Uh, It subsequently underwent a period of fluid ownership over the next several decades, experiencing cycles of prosperity and hardship. Nevertheless, the Crescent Hotel hosted countless vacations, weddings, and honeymoons to the hundreds who ventured to the Ozarks. Finally, in 1997, the Crescent Hotel finally saw an end to its revolving doors of ownership when Marty and Elise Roenick purchased it. Their stewardship marked the beginning of a true renaissance for the hotel, initiating a series of thorough renovations that saw the building restored to its former glory. The couple proudly relaunched the location as the 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa. Now, my wife has said it numerous times in this podcast. Well, you said at the beginning that we had paranormal coming up in it, so I didn't think I was doing any spoiler alerts. Well, do you remember Michael, the Irishman? Yeah. He is said to have died at the exact spot of room 218 and he haunts that room well i bet he does because not a lot was written about his death he's pissed off while working on the roof he lost his balance fell to the second floor area and was killed this area now houses room 218 of the hotel and is said to be the most haunted guest room michael is a mischievous spirit who likes to play tricks with the lights the doors and television and often is heard pounding loudly on the walls others have witnessed hands coming out of the bathroom mirror and heard cries of what sounds like a man falling in the ceiling (sighs) yet other guests have been shaken during the night and on one occasion a patron ran screaming from the room professing to have seen blood splattered all over its walls but michael is not the only spirit that roams the halls of the Crescent Hotel. Well, hell, I bet not. I bet some of them that were buried down in the morgue. A lingering spirit of a nurse dressed in all white is often seen pushing a gurney on the third floor. Only spotted after 11 p.m. when they used to move the deceased out of the cancer hospital, the ghostly spirit vanishes when she reaches the end of the hallway. Others who have not seen the apparition have reported the sounds of squeaks and rattles that sound like a gurney rolling down the hallway. That's creepy. Yeah. The laundry area is also located on the third floor where the hotel maintenance man once witnessed all of the washers and dryers inexplicably turning on by themselves in the middle of the night. The greedy Dr. Baker 
doctor in quotes, apparition has also been seen in the old recreation room in the basement and at the foot of the first floor stairway. That bitch. Don't nobody want to see him. Dressed in a purple shirt and white linen suit and looking somewhat confused. The apparition appears identical to old photos of the infamous quack. Now, something very recent. In 2019, a groundskeeper accidentally unearthed a cache of buried bottles containing human tissue. State archaeologists identified them as having been bakers, sparkling renewed media attention and popular curiosity. Many of the bottles are now prominently displayed in the basement's former morgue. Now, I did do some reading on this very recent story, and they found hundreds of bottles with what they really do think is his concoction that he injected his patients with, Mm -hmm. and they're trying to identify it, and some human, what they think was tumors, what they think was tumors that he removed and things. They were in these bottles. So he actually... He did. Did remove tumors. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. So, and that's even crazier knowing that he was not a doctor. Right. He was not a doctor. But if so. they send that liquid to NASA, they can figure it out. They can. They can figure out everything. Sure. So that's not the end of the story. There's more. There is more. I told you. I was so you gonna... can top all them bottles that were found? Yes. On the grounds? Yes. Oh, shit. I'm ready. So here... At the basically the end of this story, in front of our listeners, I'm going to tell you that we are now booked to stay there at, what? The, at the end of June, and that's your Mother's Day present. <gasps> oh my God, I'm so excited! And I have the itinerary printed out here. So I can read it. You can read it. I can read it. Oh my gosh. So we got a superior suite mm-hmm. with one king bed and a mountain view. A mountain view. Yay. Hold on. So they do offer they do offer ghost tours. Um and you can actually book a time slot to sleep in the morgue. Yeah, I don't that, there's just some shit you don't mess with. Look, everybody, there is a lot of videos of paranormal teams that have gone into the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. So we go Thursday, June 30th, and check out on Sunday, July the 3rd. Right. So I'm thinking at some point while we're there, we need to do a recording. Okay. And say, hey, we've seen this, Mm -hmm. or we haven't seen this, Mm -hmm. or, you know. I think the night before we check out, we kind of tell our listeners about our experience. Yeah. So they do offer ghost tours. Oh, um, you know we're doing that. Well, you know, yeah, for sure. But we're not sleeping in the morgue. No, they they do offer you to you know that the ability to do that. Um, there are videos of that people doing that. That mm, that's just that's asking. Well, for yeah, I know trouble. But they, um, there's a lot of videos. There has been a lot of paranormal teams that have gone into this, and they have a lot of videos. Mm-hmm. There is a lot 
of activity in this hotel that has been called EVPs, videos of ghosts, uh, photos. Go to the Crescent Hotel website, and they you can see videos. They have videos on their website of the paranormal teams. Go on there, you see photos of misty apparitions that they caught on film. It is scary. And this thing is on a mountain looking over the valley of what is Eureka Springs. This place is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Beautiful. I'm excited. So I am excited. We are going to stay three nights in the Crescent Hotel, the 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa at the end of June, beginning of July. Yay! Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. So that is the story of the Crescent Hotel. That is an awesome story. I told you it was going to have everything. I mean, I knew it was haunted, but I didn't know the backstory yeah. to why. Yep. So that's very interesting. So leading up to this, I knew that I wanted to do uh, this for your uh, for Mother's Day. Mm-hmm. I'm really surprised that I was able to get that booked. Yeah. They literally are booked around that date. So I I mean that was actually I was like I said I was really surprised I was even able to to book it cuz you look any other dates and it is booked solid. That was just Morris the cat telling me to come see his picture and stuff because I said I want to go see it. <laughs> and we're going. We're going to see Morris the cat. Okay. So that's the story. Crescent Hotel. And we will. We'll we'll uh, do a recording from there the night before, I guess, before we leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we leave there, we'll do it from there. So uh, awesome. we'll bring our equipment. We'll record in our in our room, and uh, we'll do that. So now, if we have any pictures that we catch or we have anything, we'll post them on our Facebook page, yeah, Criminally Disturbed, on our Instagram, Criminally Disturbed Podcast. So uh, be sure to stay tuned for that. Right. Uh, we will take pictures from there, mm-hmm. um, take pictures of the place. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. I am too. I'm excited. (laughs) So stay tuned. We are going to have more episodes coming. Until those next episodes, I'm Paul. And I'm Jamie. And please join us next time. And remember to stay disturbed. Bye. Bye.